Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We start at the White House where officials announced this morning that President Biden will travel to the southern border this week. It will be the first time he's gone since January of 2023. In those 13 months, a surge in illegal immigration has made this radioactive issue for the president even more so and threatens his reelection. All of the days he could pick, of all of them, Biden's team chose the same day Donald Trump will be there. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins me from the White House. A coincidence, Priscilla? Well, this is a pretty extraordinary split screen moment for a White House that up until this point has really distanced itself from the U.S.-Mexico border. But now the president is leaning in and choosing to be there on the same day as former President Donald Trump, who has made immigration a centerpiece of his campaign. Now, it appears that that failed Senate border deal was pretty pivotal for the White House. That was a deal that the White House had worked on with Senate negotiators that included some of the toughest border security measures in recent memory. But Republicans backed away from that deal with the encouragement of former President Donald Trump. And ever since then, President Biden has hammered House Republicans for their decision, saying that he would shut down the border if given the authority, an authority that was included in that Senate border deal. So they're clearly trying to seize on to an issue that has been a political liability for President Biden. And in the interim, also considering executive action that would limit the ability of migrants to seek asylum if they cross the border unlawfully, a measure that represents uh, or, or at least is reminiscent of former President Donald Trump's administration. And Dana, I should mention that over the weekend, governors were here at the White House meeting with President Biden for their annual gathering. The big topic during all of those meetings was immigration. The governors that CNN spoke with all said this was a key issue for them going into those meetings and one that President Biden talked to them about. So clearly this is an issue that is front and center this year and one that the president is seizing this Thursday. Priscilla, thank you so much for that reporting. I want to bring my panel on this and many more topics. Uh, Aisha Roscoe from NPR, Jonah Goldberg of The Dispatch and CNN's Elena Treen. Hi, happy Monday to everybody. Hi. Uh, let's start with the border. Jonah, uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that President Biden is going, that he hasn't gone in 13 months, that he's going the same day as Donald Trump? The same day as Donald Trump part just seems like the screenwriter's room is getting bored and coming up with <laughs> weird stuff. Um, uh, on the other front, I think it's long overdue that he goes just politically. Forget the policy stuff for a second. Um, the last time he went, it was kind of a surgical thing that didn't have a good photo op for him. Um, and people have been making hay about that for a very long time. And w again, people can disagree about the policy stuff. Politically, it's 
the border stuff has been really, really bad for Biden. I keep making this analogy and no one seems to agree with it, but it reminds me a lot of the BP oil spill under mm -hmm. Obama, where it was just that constant visual just drove people kind of nuts. And that constant visual of people crossing the border really yeah. unsettles politics in a way that you know is common around the West. And you know, throughout Europe, those kinds of visuals yeah. are destabilizing. So it's good that he's, it's politically it's smart that he's doing it. I buy that, I buy that analogy, but I would take it a step further and imagine the BP oil spill and then uh, people in Louisiana taking that spilled oil and putting it in Chicago and in, in, yeah. in New York. And I mean, not to sort of belittle this, but that is if you're just talking about the imagery. Uh, what are you hearing from the Trump campaign? I mean, they are very excited to be going to the border, at least Donald Trump is. I know that there was questions of whether this trip would actually be feasible for him, given the security concerns around it. But um, Donald Trump has been wanting to go and do a border trip for a while. He was there also in November, I should note. He went and met with uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, where he got Abbott's endorsement. Um, but this is a big deal for him because... Trump and his team really see immigration and the border as being one of, if not the most um, important issues that they are going to be campaigning on ahead of November. And they see it as Biden's uh, biggest vulnerability. And they that's why Donald Trump wanted to go. They didn't know that Biden was going when they scheduled this trip, I should say. Um, he wanted to have his own photo up yeah. there and to show really like, look, we're here. Where is the president? Unfortunately, now for them, the yeah. president is going to be there I, on the same day. Well, that's kind of what I meant. I can't wait to see the, the, the Trump reaction to this. OK, right. so before Thursday comes Tuesday, mm -hmm. pretty much every week, Fact check true, right? <laughs> let me, usually. Let me, let me usually. check Wikipedia real okay, quick. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> uh, and Tuesday, tomorrow, is mm. Michigan's primary. Yeah. And because of the new rules that the Democrats have, trying to move up states in their primary calendar that are, are more diverse, Michigan is early, earlier than it used to be. In addition to that, uh, Joe Biden has a, a problem in Michigan yeah. where there are a lot of Arab Americans who are not happy with his wholehearted support for Israel in its, in its war in Gaza. Uh, they are, led by Rashida Tlaib, um, congresswoman from there, pushing some, well, pushing as many voters as they can to vote uncommitted. These yes. are Democratic voters. I asked the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, about that. Here's what she said. I'm, I'm not sure what we're going to see on Tuesday, to tell you the truth. I know that um, we've got this, this primary and we will see differences of opinion. I just want to make the case, though, that it's important not to lose sight of the fact that any vote that's not cast for Joe Biden supports a second Trump term. So she's, she's not sure. And yeah. other Democrats I've talked to in Michigan, they just don't know how much of an impact that is, this is going to have. It will be symbolic. Yeah. But symbolism matters in the primary when you're talking about what it could portend for November. Oh, it absolutely matters a lot. And I got to give a shout out to Leila Fadel of NPR. She did great reporting in Michigan. And, and what she um, reported from, you know, that she was hearing about this campaign is, is essentially this idea that they want to show that there is enough concern about this, that the Biden, basically the Biden campaign has to listen. They want at least maybe 10,000 
votes. So that that's how much uh, Trump won by Michigan by in 2016. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is like, no, we may not be able to give you the win, but we could certainly make you lose. And so you better hear us and what we have to say. And so I do think this is something that the Biden campaign cannot ignore. I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday, but this is this is definitely an issue. Yeah. And um, our colleagues are are also up in Michigan talking to voters up there. Diane Gallagher uh, talked to one voter, actually a spokesman for Listen to Michigan. Listen to what he said. The vote for uncommitted is a vote for a ceasefire. It's a vote for an anti-war future. I think President Biden and his strategists around him would be wise to give people here in Michigan something to vote for. Don't tell us how bad Donald Trump is. I know how bad Donald Trump is. But what I'm saying to President Biden, what our movement is saying to his to his team, is that you are losing Michigan by making your policies synonymous with Netanyahu's. You need to take a different approach. You need to call for a ceasefire. And Jonah, let me just add one data point before I bring you in. Uh, questioning uh, young voters in, uh, in, in in Michigan, one question was, would you trust, who would you trust to handle the Gaza war? Voters under the age of 35, Donald Trump 56, Joe Biden 35. These are not just Arab Americans. These are just mm-hmm. young voters. Yeah, I, I think the young voter part of it is, because that's a more global thing sure. across the country, is probably a bigger deal electorally for Joe Biden than the actual Arab vote, in Arab American vote in, in Michigan. I do, I do have a problem with the way this whole thing is sort of discussed because it assumes that it would be all upside, the way the, a lot of the coverage is, that it would be all upside for Joe Biden if he switched positions to this, you know, to the, to the, to the pro-Palestinian position writ large. The numbers don't back that up. I mean, you're talking about politically or policy wise? Politically, okay. right? So all of the attention is where the you know squeaky wheel gets the attention. Sure. I totally get it, and I don't don't blame people who are on that side of the argument for trying to exercise political power. But if if Biden were tomorrow switch to the ceasefire position, it would probably cost him Pennsylvania. It might also cost him Michigan because I think if you actually start looking at the numbers, there. Is, Israel is more popular than the Palestinian territories in this debate. And it's debate. not just Jewish Americans. And it's not just Jewish Americans. And-, and so, again, it's sort of the one, sound of one hand clapping on a lot of the coverage on this. The conversation is all about what about the Arab American vote in Michigan, and that's a perfectly legitimate thing to talk about. But the presupposition there is that if he did what those voters wanted him to do, it wouldn't have negative political consequences for him, too. He's just in a tough position. Yeah, I think, but I think that's the way it is on all of the, on the border, on this issue, is that it's just so much more nuanced of a base that he has to deal with, whereas Trump can just go all the way to the yeah. right on the border, right. he can go all the way on Israel, and he's got his base, whereas Biden has to walk this line, and if he gets really tough on the border, he's going to lose some people. Whatever he does on the israel Gaza the thing he's going to lose some yeah, voters such good points all of them it, nuances a lot of people don't do nuance no not in politics <laughs> no 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 that is definitely a news flash uh more news this morning to tell you about donald trump his adult sons and two former trump organization officials have appealed the 464 million dollar judgment against them in the new york civil fraud case cnn's kara scannell has the latest kara Hey, Dana. Yeah. So today is the first day after the judgment was issued on Friday that Donald Trump could make his appeal. And he did so first thing this morning. So indicating that he is going to challenge the judge's findings on the the, the case of which he was 
accused and the judge found that he inflated the value of his properties to get better rates on loans and insurance. But also he is appealing this judgment It's a big number. You know, some lawyers I've talked to say it may be unprecedented against an individual. And that is the key piece of this. I mean, in addition, Trump is also banned from doing business, essentially serving as a director or officer of a New York business uh, for two years, his sons for three years. Um, this is significant to them as they try to figure out how to run the Trump organization. And the judge has also continued the, a monitor that he put in place. That monitor will continue for three years. And he's also ordered them to put in place an independent compliance officer to stop any fraud from continuing. So they're appealing all of that. But of course, the big question is the money. How will Donald Trump come up with his share of it, which is about $454 million? You know, he could post that in cash if he has it. He could also post a bond. Uh, but interest will accrue on this unless he posts it in full at a rate of 9% a year. So all questions now and watching when and how he is going to satisfy this judgment. You know, on Friday, his lawyers, just after this big number was entered in the New York case, his lawyers in the E. Jean Carroll case asked the judge for more time before he has to satisfy that $83.3 million jury verdict. Dana? Kara Scannell, thank you so much for that reporting. Up next, with South Carolina under his belt, Donald Trump moves closer to clinching the nomination and is looking toward the general election. Not everything is coming up roses, though. We'll explain after a quick break. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about this stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Donald Trump's dominant performance in South Carolina all but ended the race for the Republican nomination. It also revealed some potential pitfalls for him in the general election. CNN's Kristen Holmes has been talking to her sources in the Trump campaign. Uh, what were their takeaways besides the fact that he feels very, very good, understandably so? Dana, the biggest takeaway was that they need to start focusing on the general election, and that's for a number of reasons. One, of course, as you mentioned, this was a huge win and actually comes off of three other big primary wins. And their decision is that they need to pivot to the general election to look forward to November, even though Nikki Haley might stay in the race. Now, we're not talking about some kind of Donald Trump presidential pivot. He's going to change anything that he says or does. His team knows exactly who he is. He, this is more of a campaign pivot, looking into the infrastructure in key battleground states. How do they build up places like Arizona, Michigan, Georgia. And a lot of that is based on what you said, these early warning signs of a potential general election matchup for Donald Trump if it is him and Joe Biden. So let's look at some of the exit polls from South Carolina. Again, he had a resounding win in South Carolina. But if you look at this exit poll, it says the feelings if Trump wins the nomination, this is the poll number one, South Carolina voters, 68% say they would be satisfied. 
31% say they would be dissatisfied. That is a lot of people saying they would be dissatisfied. Poll two, Trump physically and mentally fit to serve effectively. 68% say yes, 31% say no. Trump's team knows they have an uphill battle getting into November. They know that their candidate is incredibly polarizing. They know they need to bring in new voters, people who actually haven't been to the polls. They need to reevaluate data that they have. They need to try to get some independent voters. That is a big reason why they need to shift their focus to the general election. It's not just because they want to, they feel like they're winning, they feel like this is the time. It's also because they have to. There are only so many months until November and they need to continue to build up so that they can take on Joe Biden in November. They are well aware of the candidate they are working for. I think everybody is. Thank you so much, Kristen. Appreciate that reporting. Uh, our panel is back now. Let's just listen uh, to what both Donald Trump and Nikki Haley said on election night in South Carolina. I have never seen the Republican Party so unified as it is right now. Never been like this. They can say Donald Trump won. I give him that. But he, as a Republican incumbent, didn't get 40% of the vote of the primary. Elena, I'll start with you. You've been on the trail a lot. Mm -hmm. I have. Um, and I think Nikki Haley does make a point that I know Donald Trump's campaign um, is thinking about. The delegate math isn't there for Nikki Haley, but when she, what she was just talking about there isn't a general. And she did have four in 10 um, voters go for Nikki Haley, a lot of also independents and Democrats. I was at a polling location on Saturday in South Carolina. Obviously, South Carolina um, is, has always been a very big state for Donald Trump. But there were a lot of people who said they voted for Nikki Haley because not necessarily because they like Nikki Haley's policies, but because they were anti Donald Trump. And that is going to be the issue with a lot of um, voters in a general and if Donald Trump can court those. And I know from my conversations with the Trump campaign, yes, they want to pivot, as Kristen mentioned, to November, but they still don't exactly know how they're going to court a lot of the voters they need. They consistently tell me that every vote is on the table. They want to chip away at Biden's support with black voters, with Hispanic voters, with working class voters, but they still don't necessarily have as, she, as Kristen mentioned, the infrastructure in place or even the formal plans of how to do that just yet. And that's the big thing I'm watching. Right. For. And there's trying to encroach on somebody else's mm -hmm. traditional turf and then there's shoring up your own. Uh, and let's just look at some of the data points from Saturday night from South Carolina uh, about who voted for for whom. Donald Trump did extraordinarily well with people who consider themselves very conservative. 84% uh, should note in 2016, Ted Cruz beat him in that category. White evangelicals, MAGA voters did very well. The areas where he did not do as well, college graduates and moderate to liberal voters, those who call themselves that. Nikki Haley beat uh, Donald Trump pretty handily, particularly with those who call themselves moderate and liberal. Yeah, so, I mean, I have all sorts of quibbles about a lot of this. Um, the... <laughs> I love a Jonah quibble. Yeah, so like, so first of all, we live in an issueless time on the right. The only issue is Donald Trump himself, mm. right? You look at the Republican debates this time around, it didn't matter where you came down. Donald Trump is playing games about maybe changing his position on abortion and there's almost no blowback for it. The issue that divides the Republican Party is Donald Trump. You know, you get, when we were growing up, if you, or at least when you and I were growing yeah. up, uh, if you got called a rhino or a squish, if you were soft on abortion or tax cuts or military defense. Now, rhino basically means insufficiently loyal to Donald Trump. That's the defining issue. So when people say, define themselves as very conservative, 
it's a, in, for many of them, it's a stand-in for very supportive of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, Nikki, the key word that Nikki said there was that she's, that he's an incumbent. He's not really an incumbent, but everybody's been talking about how he's a quasi or de facto incumbent. And George H.W. Bush in 1992, uh, Pat Buchanan ran against them, got 37% in the um, New Hampshire primary, and people called that a devastating blow and proof that the Republican Party was irreparably divided. Nikki Haley beat that in New Hampshire, beat that in South Carolina. George H.W. Bush lost. And George H.W. Bush <laughs> lost. And so I'm not saying that this foretells that he's going to yeah. lose because the coalitions are different now, but it's not, as Trump said, the Republican Party has never been more unified. That's yeah. nonsense. Yeah, the coalitions are different now. It, it is also true uh, that just since we're taking a walk down history lane, uh, that on the Democratic side, I mean, look at the divide um, between uh, voters for Obama and Hillary and so on and so forth and and Obama ended up winning that. So it certainly happens. Same with even Biden and, and Bernie Sanders in 2020. It certainly happens. That's what primaries are all about. But to your point about this being about Trump and the cult of personality, and also what you were saying about anecdotally meeting voters who said, I didn't come here to vote for Nikki Haley. I came here to vote against Donald Trump. The numbers in the exit polls really bear that out. 79% said they were voting for their candidate, 20% against. And of those 20%, the vast majority were voting, who voted for Haley, were voting against Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, in this elect, presumably in this election, which will likely be between Trump and Biden, you have two deeply unpopular candidates. So what you will be trying to do, or what these campaigns will be trying to do, is get those people who hate both of them and who can win those voters. That was pivotal in 2016, where, you know, the people that hated Trump and hated Clinton, they went for Trump. And that helped him put him over the top. And I think you're going to have that weird divide again where you have two deeply unpopular like candidates. Who do I dislike least? And who, who do you dislike least? Mm. And you'll just pull the lever for Right now, I mean, you see a lot of Nikki Haley vo voters, even though they do not like Trump, they say about 70% of them are saying they will still vote for him in, in, you know, in the general. Yeah, and that's an important point. No, I completely agree with that. And I think... When we look ahead to November, that's really where I think a lot of the candidates' work is cut out for them, is in finding these voters that, um, recognizing that they're both very disliked. And I mean, I just always want to add, too, one thing with Joe Biden that mm -hmm. I, is similar to what we were describing about voters telling me they wanted to vote against Trump. That's the best thing that Joe Biden has going for him as well. All the time when I'm on the road and I talk to Democrats, they say, you know, yes, there are things I like about Joe Biden, but the race is less about Joe Biden and wanting to vote for him than it is against voting for Donald Trump. That's very true in the general as well. And that's really where I think a lot of this is going to play out. Which is why you he you've heard Nikki Haley consistently saying, nobody likes either of these mm -hmm. guys. That's why I vote for me. It's just in this Republican electorate, in this Republican party, that's not flying. Yeah. So the electability argument didn't work. And in part because 80 something percent of Republicans who voted for Trump believe that he can beat Biden. That's a believable, that's a plausible belief when Joe Biden's numbers are the worst they've been in the history of polling for an incumbent president. Um, the interesting thing to me was how many people who um, thought that Trump was electable still voted for Nikki. Like half of her voters voted mm -hmm. saying Trump could win. And that gets to the point that, yeah, the reason they're voting for Nikki, Nikki is because they think Trump could be president again and they don't want that. Right. The electability argument is supposed to win over voters who you don't already have. And that didn't work for the aforementioned reasons. But um, I think that the people who dislike both, the latest numbers I've seen, they break overwhelmingly still for Biden. 
But that can change in the heat of a general election pretty yeah, easily. We're many, many months away from that. Okay, everybody stand by because up next, Ronna McDaniel is out as Republican Party chair. President Trump wants an election denier and his daughter-in-law to take over. We're going to ask a top RNC member whether they're right to be the heads of the RNC and whether they can help Republicans, Donald Trump in particular, and those down the line on the ballot win in November. Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel will officially step down from her position on March 8th, days after Super Tuesday. Her departure comes as tension is rising between Trump and the RNC. RNC committee member Henry Barber joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's good to see you, Henry. First, let me just ask you about what your reaction is to both Ronna McDaniel leaving and Trump's endorsed candidates for RNC chair Michael Watley from North Carolina and co-chair his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump. Well, I th I, it's a bad precedent. Um, and I say that because I think Donald Trump is, is jumping the gun before the primary is over um, to begin to influence things at the RNC. Um, he's supposed to get uh, a majority of the delegates wrapped up, and we've only voted in four states. And voters deserve to be able to, ha to have a vote and a say. That's the process that we, we have in, in place and that we've had in place for decades and in effect, Donald Trump is trying to change the rules in the middle of the game. But I'm not happy about Ronna leaving. Um, but I don't think there's any question that Michael Watley and Laura Trump will get elected at the meeting. Are you happy that they will get elected? Well, I'm not happy that, and, and this is the reason I offered this resolution dealing with neutrality. It says the RNC should stay neutral through the primary. And, and it should, and we shouldn't have a campaign dictating to us while the primary is still going on. We, there's another candidate running, and Donald Trump, while he has a significant lead, in which I'm, I'm not blind to, um, the RNC has a job to be neutral. And at least until we have a presumptive nominee, um, Michael, I like Michael Watley. I know him well. I don't know Laura Trump. But as I say, uh, they're both going to get elected. Uh, I don't think there's any real question about that, Dana. Henry, you mentioned uh, a pair of resolutions that you're pushing inside the Republican National Committee. One was uh, a pledge for neutrality. The other one would bar the RNC from paying any of Donald Trump's legal fees. Uh, Laura Trump, who we were just talking to, has not surprisingly suggested that she would be open to the committee paying her father-in-law's legal bills. How hard are you willing to fight to make sure this doesn't happen? Well, I'm, I certainly am willing you know, to take a stand that it may not be uh, popular with some right now, um, the RNC has one job, Dana, and that's to win elections. And we should spend our finite resources on political operations and actually winning elections and paying any candidates legal fees or, frankly, any other outside fees or expenses is not the RNC's job. Our job is to win elections. And the other reason that I think... It, I would be opposed to this is that the RN, when the RNC sends out a solicitation and says, hey, do you want to take the White House back and get the country back on track? Donors send in their $28 or whatever it is. 
Well, it's totally, it would be totally misleading to take that money and then go and spend it with some big fat law firm, you know, legal fees for something that has nothing to do with winning the election this cycle. So I'm opposed. Forgive me. You know that um, it's been, it happened until Trump became a candidate for president this cycle. The RNC was already paying his legal bills from uh, when he was president, uh, at least $1.6 million of those donor um, right. funds that you were talking about have already gone to those law firms, to lawyers to help uh, his legal fil- fees. I should say, in response to right. your resolutions, uh, Trump advisor Chris Lasavita, who is expected to move into the RNC, released a statement saying the primary is over and it's the RNC's sole responsibility to defeat Joe Biden and win back the White House. Efforts to delay that assist Joe Biden in the destruction of our nation. Republicans cannot stand on the sidelines and allow this to happen. What's your response? Chris Lasavita is a good man. He's a good operative. Um, He just happens to be wrong. Um, The RNC has laid out the rules and the process and the primary schedule. Once a candidate gets to 1,215 delegates, then you have a majority of the delegates and you can become the presumptive nominee and run things. They're jumping ahead of the game. We've got four states that have voted. Um, It's just, like I say, changing the rules in the middle of the game. And I I don't think it's right. Um, But I I do, I respect La Civita. He's very good at what he does. And a lot of the Trump campaign is very talented. Um, so I appreciate that, but they need to respect the rules at the RNC that number one, we have to be neutral. And number two, we should spend our resources on winning elections and not on legal fees for candidates of, of any type. And Henry, before I let you go, I just want to ask about the mechanics, uh, your goal in order to get this resolution passed this specifically, I'm talking about, uh, the one to say the RNC can't pay Donald Trump's legal fees. Uh, you need, you told me, a pair of Republican National Committee men from 10 states. Where are you in that effort? I have six states um, lined up. And I will say Chris LaCivita has said, Trump's campaign operative, that he agrees that the RNC won't pay that. So I would ask Chris, well, then why don't you encourage RNC members to go ahead and make this official and let's pass this resolution Um, The other resolution will have to stand on its own. And without La Civita doing that, these aren't going to pass. Interesting. Very, very interesting times uh, inside the Republican Party. And this is just one very big aspect of it. Henry, thank you so much for coming on today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dana. Coming up, a CNN exclusive, why a secret Twitter account unearthed by our reporters reveals a far more aggressive election subversion strategy than we knew. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them on Be My Guest, the podcast. New friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. New exclusive reporting from CNN's K-File. The team uncovered a secret Twitter account from the right-wing attorney who helped devise 
the Trump campaign's fake electors plot. I'm talking about Kenneth Chesborough. He's the lawyer who pleaded guilty last year in the Georgia election subversion case. He then cooperated with prosecutors in Georgia and in other states across the country to avoid more charges. But he concealed from those prosecutors the secret Twitter account that our team discovered. And here's why this really matters. It shows that he was promoting a far more aggressive election subversion strategy than he let on. CNN's Marshall Cohen has been working on this. Marshall, so Chesborough, I should say, hid his secret account from prosecutors in Michigan. And there are tapes, too? There are, Dana. And look, when you cooperate, you need to tell the truth. And CNN's K-File team uncovered a secret Twitter that Chesborough concealed from prosecutors in Michigan. And dozens of tweets from 2020 undercut what he later told them about his role in the scheme. We also obtained the audio of Chesborough's Michigan interview so you can hear it for yourself. When he was asked directly if he uses social media, he said no. Take a listen. Do you have any social media presence, uh, Facebook, Instagram, no, Twitter? I, I mean, uh, no. Uh, I, I, for whatever, I mean, before... Any uh, yeah. uh, alternate IDs that you're using for that kind of stuff? No, I mean, uh, I don't I don't do any tweeting. Yeah, maybe he had good reason to hide those tweets, Dana, because they reveal that even before the 2020 election, Chesborough promoted a far more aggressive fake elector strategy than he later let on. Here's just one example. When he was with the Michigan prosecutors, he repeatedly said that the fake electors were purely a contingency to be used if Trump won any of his election lawsuits. Listen to what he told the prosecutors. So Eastman, he had this idea that state legislatures could somehow be effective in overturning the courts, which I thought was ridiculous. I wanted conditional language in all the states that I suggested three times to the Trump campaign on December 12th that they make it conditional on winning litigation. So that's what he told them. But look at this from Chesborough's anonymous Twitter account called Badger Pundit. On the day Trump lost, he wrote, quote, Trump doesn't have to get courts to declare him the winner. He just needs to convince Republican legislatures that the election was systematically rigged, totally dismissing the role of the courts, embracing the strategy that you just heard him call ridiculous. And Dana, this is just one of many examples where his tweets and his testimony don't line up. Really remarkable. Marshall, do you uh, are you hearing any reaction from the Michigan attorney general? We are, and I want to be crystal clear that Chesbro has not been charged with any crimes in Michigan, but experts told us that this could put him in more legal jeopardy. The Michigan Attorney General already charged the fake electors in that state last year, and they have an ongoing investigation. They told us that they are interested in this new material about the Twitter, and they will be, quote, looking into the matter. We also spoke to Chesbro's attorneys. They confirmed that this secret account does belong to him and they acknowledge mm. that there are some inconsistencies. They have gone back to the states where he cooperated and told those investigators all about his tweets. But Dana, they're also drawing a distinction between Ken Chesborough, the serious lawyer, and Badger Pundit, the online persona. This is what his attorney, Robert Langford, told us. Quote, when he was doing volunteer work for the campaign, he was very specific and hunkered down into being the lawyer that he is and gave specific legal advice based on things that he thought were legitimate legal challenges. 
versus Badger Pundit, who is this other guy over there just being a goof. Dana? Wow. Uh, a lot to unpack there. Marshall, thank you so much for that terif- terrific reporting and also to our colleagues at the K-File. Thanks. Up next, Democrats hit Trump on IVF and abortion as he and other Republicans are still struggling with the message on that. Republicans spent the weekend racing to express support for in vitro fertilization after the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos have the same legal rights as children. That decision makes IVF legally questionable and possible right now in Alabama, but questionable uh, nationwide. Here is Donald Trump over the weekend adding his voice to the Republican chorus. The Republican Party should always be on the side of the miracle of life and the side of mothers and fathers and beautiful little babies have to be on that side. IVF is an important part of that, and our great Republican Party will always be with you. My panel is back with me now. Um, What are you hearing from your Republican sources about the... um, political minefield that they feel that they are stepping on Mm -hmm. with this. Well, as I was saying before, with the border being one of Joe Biden's most vulnerable issues, this is the vulnerable issue for Republicans. And I think Republicans in Congress across the state and obviously Donald Trump's campaign recognize that this is not a good issue for them, especially as people are um, arguing that this is a result of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. We know that Donald Trump's campaign wants to stay far away from abortion. He wants to stay far away from this issue as well. Although um, a lot of people did give him credit, and Republicans, I should say, for taking a clear stance on this. Um, and it's why I think we've seen others, other Republicans who were struggling on how to handle this issue reject it as well. Okay, so Republicans pretty much across the board are saying, I'm pro-IVF. That's the messaging. But then there are important follow-up questions, one of which I asked the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, yesterday. Are you saying that families in Texas who are using IVF have extra embryos that are frozen, do not need to worry? Well, so you raise fact questions uh, that are complex that I simply don't know the answer to. Let me give you a couple of uh, examples, and that is, uh, I have no idea mathematically the, the, the number of frozen embryos. Is it, is it one, ten, a hundred, a thousand? These are very complex issues where I'm not sure everybody has really thought about uh, what all the potential problems are. IVF has been around for like half a century. Yeah, but, but points for honesty. This is, a great, totally. this is a great example of how the pro-life movement, um, which I've been surrounded by my entire professional life, did not know what to do once they caught the car. And I think the Alabama law, the Alabama court, strip out some of the theocratic language that no one else subscribed to, got it right on the law. I actually think they got it right on the law. It just getting it right on the law put them on the wrong side of the policy. And so now the Alabama legislature is going to need to fix this in, in, a, in a hurry because pro-life voters support IVF. And this has always been... Among intellectual pro-lifers, there's a consistent argument about the ethical issues about IVF. But in the practical world, the reason why this IVF thing in in Alabama is a mess is because of the legal liability. If it's a person and through negligence you allow this Mm -hmm. person to die, you got all sorts of problems. And so it's it's basically like the insurance companies will not cover um, IVF clinics until they fix this. 
And I, Ten and, seconds. And if it's a person, there's also the question of whether you should be able to test to see whether you would either discard the embryo or keep the embryo in genetic, in cases where there are genetic issues. So it's a very broad issue and, and something that's going to be like a really political quagmire. That is for sure. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate you. Thank you for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after a break.